Chris Kander opens our all-female season three of Effing Shakespeare with a lovely conversation about witnessing magic in the everyday and how learning to really notice is the only rule she knows how to follow in crafting stories. We talk about adverbs and bull writing, and we discuss her publishing journey, which sounds more like the world's meanest conceived prank for a writer than something that actually ends happily. But happily, it does, lending hope to us all. It's a your turn. We're like, oh, it's mine. <laughs> it's not me. It's you. <laughs> it's totally you. That's true. That's true. Oh, I can't remember Claire's Ca- name. Uh, uh, yes, Alice. Jill. Alice. Alice. <laughs> <laughs> Spoon's always like, there's sirens all over the place. Do you realize your house is burning down? <laughs> I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. I have a friend who absolutely delights in reading a book and reporting back on how many pages it was before she had figured out the entire plot. She's the kind of moviegoer who will lean in and tell you, this is where you know X and Y is going to happen because of that Z. We used to watch a lot of Law and Order, and I was always appalled and not a little defeated when she'd exclaim five minutes in, they're going to make you think it was the angry sister, but really, it's the stepmother's yoga teacher. And nine times out of ten, she'd be right. Dear listeners, reading Chris Kander's work is not about this at all. In fact, I would posit that she writes in such a way to resist this sort of end of the book peeking under the skirt. Though there is indeed an intricate tapestry of plot with plenty of surprises, no angry yoga teachers, her writing directs the reader towards savoring, to read every luscious detail like it's a spoonful of velvety honey. I finished her new novel, The Weight of a Piano, and was so hungry for more, I quickly devoured her earlier novel, Eleven Stories, in one sitting a day later. Would her earlier work be as good as this new sweeping epic of a novel? Oh my gosh, yes. What Candor does so masterfully, among many things, is as a reader, you can see story unfurling in front of you like an expanse of richly detailed landscape because she's a master storyteller. But the details of the scene, the moment that you're reading right now, are so captivating, you're swept up by the intensity of feeling that your brain can't tear itself away to plot or predict what will happen next and you don't want to. Everything else shuts down, you're out of the frontal lobe and in the part of the brain that processes emotion. Thus consumed, you live in the beating heart of her stories. That's what Candor does. Long after you close the book, these heartbeats stay with you and they're a testament to Candor's towering talent. To tell a story that commands you to live in the beautifully consuming world of her making. Chris Kander, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. I, I so enjoyed reading this book and reading the others as well for lots of reasons. One, I think I need piano therapy, so we can <laughs> talk about that. But also, especially with the weight of, of a piano, I love dual narratives. I love that style. And so, yeah, so of course I was going to like it from the get-go, but then I'm swept up in both stories and love them equally as well. Can you give the readers or the listeners before we start a little snapshot of that, of your new novel? Yes. But before I say that, I just want to say thank you for those kind words. Oh, I'm so happy it. that it resonated with you. Thank you. So the novel, The Weight of a Piano, follows the interweaving stories of two women, a Soviet concert pianist named Katya and a modern day auto mechanic named Clara. And they're shared and in many ways, devastating connection to this piano, this upright Blutner piano, and its history and to each other. Yeah, so good, so good. I guess, can we just start with an excerpt? Sure, absolutely. So in deciding what to read, because it is a dual narrative, I didn't want to have to play favorites. And so I thought that I would just begin with the opening chapter, which really focuses on the piano itself which is the constant through the whole novel. So this is chapter one. 
hidden in dense forests high in the Romanian mountains, where winters were especially cold and long, were spruce trees that would be made into pianos, exquisite instruments famous for the warmth of their tone and beloved by the likes of Schumann and Liszt. One man alone knew how to choose them. Once leaves had fallen and snow blanketed the ground, Julius Blutner made the trip from Leipzig by train and walked through the forest alone. Because of the elevation and the brutal cold, trees there grew very slowly. They stood straight and thick against the elements, their grain dense with rosin. Blutner nodded to the young trees as he passed, occasionally brushing their bark in greeting. He sought the older ones, whose branches he couldn't reach, whose diameters were so great he couldn't see if a bear were standing behind the trunk. He knocked them with his walking stick and pressed his ear against them as his intuition dictated, listening for the music hidden inside. He heard it more clearly than any other piano maker, better even than Ignaz Bosendorfer and Karl Beckstein and Henry Steinway. When he found what he was listening for, he marked the tree with a scrap of red wool, which stood out bright against the snow. Then the lumberjacks he'd hired cut down the trees he'd chosen. Watching closely, Blutner could tell which ones were the finest specimens by how they fell. Only those with a minimum of seven annular rings per centimeter, all evenly spaced, would be carried out of the forest on sleds, then shipped back to Germany and the finest among these would become the soundboards that beat like hearts inside his famous pianos. As protection against splitting, the logs were kept wet until they reached the sawmill. There they were quarter-sawn to unlock the purest tones, then sawn and plain into uniform planks. The wood chips went into the furnaces to heat the mill and power the steam engines. Because of knots and other imperfections revealed in the cutting, many of the precious tonewood planks also ended up in the furnaces. What was kept was nearly perfect, white in color, light and flexible, the faint traces of the rings densely spaced and running parallel across the faces of the soundboard planks. These raw boards were stored for at least two years, covered and uncovered until their humidity dwindled to about 14%. When it was ready, the wood was transported by horse cart to the enormous Blutner factory in the western quarter of Leipzig and laid out on racks near the ceiling in hot rooms for many months. But even then it wasn't ready to become an instrument. To ensure that the soundboard would someday conduct Blutner's peerless golden tone, the wood had to dry out for another few years in the open air. It was with reverence then, in 1905, that an assistant Klavierbaumeister selected a number of those carefully seasoned planks and glued them edge to edge to form a single board. He cut it to the proper shape and planed it to the proper thickness, flexible enough to vibrate, but strong enough to push back against the pressure of more than 200 strings. Once crafted, it was returned to those warmer rooms to dry further before thin ribs could be applied to its underside, perpendicular to the grain lines. Then the soundboard took on a small amount of moisture, enough to allow its top to swell into a gentle curve, upon which the base and treble bridges would sit, their downward pressure meeting the apex of the opposing curve as if around a great barrel. The Klavierbaumeister admired his work, the impeccably matched parallels of the grain, the precise curvature of the crown. This particular soundboard would provide the heart for the factory's 66,825th piano. The frame of the case was built by other craftsmen, its five back posts sturdy enough to bear the weight of the soundboard and the iron plate. The pin block was cut and fitted. The agraphs were seated into the plate at a height that would determine the speaking length of the strings, which were then strung. Tuning pins were hammered in, and the action set and fitted. Cold pressed felt was layered but thick onto the wooden hammers, thinning appropriately toward the delicate treble side. Dampers were installed next, along with the trapwork of pedals and levers, dowels and springs. The case was ebonized after the guts were in, requiring countless coats. The finisher's arm muscles bulged above their rolled-up sh rolled shirt-sleeves. Next, the instrument, nearly complete, was tuned, the tension of each of the 220 strings adjusted to the correct pitch. Then it was regulated, the touch and responsiveness of the action attended to until the motion of the fingers on the keys would be properly transferred to the hammers that struck the strings. 
at last, after many years of effort by many expert hands, the piano was delivered to its final station for voicing. The meister there lifted the linen blanket covering it and passed a hand over the shiny black top. Why should this piano be special? Each one was special, with its own soul and distinct personality. This one was substantial but unassuming, mysterious but sincere. He let the linen drop to the factory floor. What will you say to this world? he asked the instrument. He shaped the hammers one by one, listening to every string, shaving and minutely aerating the felt again and again. He was like a diagnostician, knocking the nerves below a patient's kneecap, measuring the response. The piano called out it each time in compliant reply. Hello, hello. Fertig, he said when the work was done. He wiped the sweat off his forehead with his sleeve, pushed the wisps of white hair away from his face. Standing back from the piano, he regarded this complete and brand new entity that would be, after being played in properly, capable of incredible feats. The first few years were unpredictable, but over time it would open up and gather into itself a unique history. For now it was a perfect instrument, characterized only by its potential. The meister fluffed his apron as he sat down on the barrel he'd borrowed for a seat, and flexing his fingers, considered which piece to christen the piano with. Schubert, his favorite composer. He would play the rondo of his penultimate sonata, the big A major. The opening melody was pretty, with a feeling of hopefulness and joy that preceded its more pensive, agitated development. This would be the perfect inauguration of the glistening black Blutner number 66,825. Listen, he called out, but nobody could hear him above the factory's ambient noise. Here she is born. And he pressed his finger down on C-sharp, the first note of the rondo, listening hard, and it rang out to meet him with the innocence and power of a child's first cry. Finding it as pure as he'd hoped, he began to play the rest of the sonata. He would send off this shining new piano with as much optimism as he could gather, knowing it would no longer be as vestal once it was touched by its future owner's desperately human hands. So Stephen King, in his, his On Writing, uh, it's called On Writing, but we call it the On Writing Bible. Um, he, he, I love the book, and I use it a lot, but I, he has this um, diatribe <laughs> hatred of uh, adverbs. <laughs> and I would argue that like that last sentence, the desperately human hands, like that has to be there. It's, <laughs> it's so good. It's Thank so good. you. Yeah. Um, especially in this novel where everyone is so desperate and also using their hands. Yes. Constantly. Yes. It's such a yes. good setup. Thank such you. Setup. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, so I think Stephen King is wrong. I do too. I have to say, I don't understand why people <laughs> malign the adverb. I, I actually love adverbs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I try to use them sparingly, but I do. <laughs> um, I love them too, secretly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You're doing something really exciting at your reading, something I've I never am. seen before. Yeah. What is going to happen at Christchurch Cathedral? I'm so excited about this. Um, because this is my third book and, and the people that I know will come and support it have already heard me read from other books, I thought, you know, I want to thank them by doing something a little bit bigger in scope, a little more interesting. And so I decided to write a stage play based on the novel, pulling out some key scenes and having actors perform them. And so that instead of listening to me read, um, because people can read it on their own, I wanted them to experience what it was like for me to imagine the book as I was writing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I also, at the end of this book, there is a piece of music that's written um, by Katya. It's the only chapter that's sort of told in the pianos. Well, there's two, but it's uh, the piano story, life story. It's called Der Isa. And I commissioned that piece of music um, from a young composer named Connor Scott and he's the nephew of a close friend of mine in Houston Connor lives in Atlanta and he's flying in for the launch event to perform music that exists in the book that, that's part of the book throughout and also to conclude with the debut performance of Die Reise. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah. Goosebumps. It's amazing. <laughs> when is this? It is on launch day. It's January 22nd at 7 p.m. January 22nd. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's the day that the book drops. And so we're celebrating big. I mean, and also raising the bar because, <laughs> and woe to you, reader, you know, novel reader, if you have a reading that's, you know, not as interesting because Chris Kander's going to bring it. Not to take anything away from your, a traditional Your attention to detail that, I mean, is clearly in everything that you write, you're, from your essays to Whisper Hollow and 11 Stories and uh, made of the of a piano. It's it's so evident in how you're imagining this this reading. I, mm-hmm. It's really stunning that that you you know thought to commission a piece and included it in the novel and um and it it never feels Wikipedia esque. I mean, even that first chapter with all the details about how a you know this particular piano was constructed. It it reads so movingly and so, I mean, it's like a heart surgeon describing the workings of a body or, um, I mean, it's so infused with emotion and, and, and I feel like you bring that multidimensionality and and attention to details and commitment to all the different details in everything that you do, everything that you create. What a beautiful compliment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you have a favorite dual narrative that you were thinking about when you conceived of this idea? Okay, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I, I really didn't. I, you know, it didn't even start out as a dual narrative story. It started out as Clara's story. Um, oh, my gosh. Because I wanted, you know, the the idea of of this woman having only a single physical connection to her childhood and it not being something small like a photograph but some huge albatross something that required a commitment to hang on to and her relationship with that was not 100% positive you know it was kind of a burden as much as it was a gift to have that connection it was also a real burden and when I was writing about that and examining it I thought but that only tells part of the story because the piano you know, I felt a sense of compassion for this, for this physical object that I wanted to explore, not just Claire's relationship to it, but, you know, who else owned it? How did mm-hmm. they interact with it? Who, who built it? Who conceived of the idea of creating it? And so as I went back to explore those different angles, Katya emerged and she was really just sort of a, a flashback initially just sections that where the piano who had touched it who had played it who had built it and then Katya really grabbed me by the heart because mm-hmm. she's got such an interesting and diametrically opposed relationship with this Blutner piano and she just kept developing in my mind and so it wasn't that I was inspired by other books with dual narratives. It just, this was the, the way that this story needed to be told. Mm-hmm. And these two women came to you and, you know, both of them, both of the stories had to be told. It was yes. a great counterpoint. Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah. And I think I would argue like only a piano could hold those two stories. You know what I mean? You could, there's not, there's not a novel about another instrument. There's something about pianos that, is weighty in that way yeah right because they're so not portable and yet this piano does travel quite a bit for something so heavy it really does (laughs) and gathers the fact that you use the term compassion for an object that's what i'm talking about like that's it's not i mean lots of writers are good at details and it's not about comparing necessarily but i feel your compassion for this object and that's what strangely makes I mean it adds just the sort of page turny aspect of the of the novel I mean there is you know story and surprises and all the things that Kate talked about in the in the intro but it's the compassion for the objects even even Clara thinking about car engines and 
all the different the, the t-shirt that Greg gives her there there's yeah. so much mm-hmm. given to objects that it feels surreal and otherworldly and yet very very grounded and speaking of that I I really loved the snippets that you collected that that became whisper hollow yeah and I again like I, I feel like all writers should maybe publish a snapshot of that in their you know in their acknowledgements page or something like that of every every novel they write but I'm wondering if you have a similar sort of collection for for um, For this one yeah I and thank you for mentioning that because when I looked back on the writing of Whisper Hollow which I I did many iterations of that book and trying to kind of go back and and recreate in my mind how it got written because once it's done there's this almost release of of memory if mm-hmm. that's possible of how the different elements came together i know that they did i know that i sat at my desk and i know that the ideas were there and somehow i assembled them into this cohesive piece but looking back and trying to remember gave me an idea and so for this new book well for the weight the weight of a piano I thought I'm going to keep a journal and I'm going to write down all of these moments of inspiration or serendipity and even frustration and as you're writing as I was writing it and and because I thought I want to be able to look back later and remember what it was like almost like a travel log of the writing process Mm -hmm. and the first entry in that journal was dated june 11th 2013 in which i recorded the moment that i had met the woman who would give me the idea for this story and i wrote about how impactful that was and why in that moment i was seized by the idea for a, a book that i would i knew that i would commit myself to writing this particular story and then the next the next big moment was dated June 28th and and that was where I recorded the fact that through a string of very helpful people I was connected over the phone to this incredible 82-year-old Blutner dealer in Los Angeles oh. named Helga Kazimov and she and I talked on the phone for an hour and a half yes oh my god and we talked about pianos and immigration and her husband's very interesting life in Russia. She was German. He, she is German. He was Russian. And, and she gave me, quote unquote, gave me this piano, my Blutner piano that would become the centerpiece oh, of this novel. Yeah. And we talked about what my character's lives might have been like as they immigrated, what challenges they would have faced. So she really gave me some of that early history that I would then go on and research further with other people. But here's a really cool side note to that. For one of the events on my tour, I will be in LA and I'm going to be in conversation with Helga. And oh my god! Yes, and oh, her, my sister lives in LA. Oh, I'm to- she's she's totally going to be there. And, <laughs> and so cool. because they are the oldest Blutner dealer in the country, and she has access to lots of pianos, I believe that they are taking a, one of their pianos, a Blutner, out of the Holocaust Museum and bringing it to the Skylight Books in order for one of their Russian friends to perform Chris. music. Too. Yes, yes. I mean, again, I know. these like events that are real events. So oh cool. God. But then, but so that was a side note. But back to the to the snippet. So I really did on on a very regular basis record these little moments, just you know, a spark of an idea, or even jotting down at what point I was in the book, what where I was struggling, what my frustrations might have been, and so the next, I mean. There are many, but the next really interesting one that sort of helped me start to build out the story was, it was a month later. I remember driving to the post office and I turned on NPR and the actor Shirley Jones was on the Diane Reem show and Mm -hmm. I caught her mid-sentence and she's talking about her former husband, Jack. She said that he had been smoking a cigarette on the couch and it slipped into the Naugahyde cushions and he went out to dinner with his friends and he came back and he fell asleep on the couch and it exploded 
and his whole apartment burned up and he with it. And in that moment, I thought that's how Clara's parents die. And, and so, you know, on and on it goes, there are these Mm -hmm. little moments, these things that almost feel like I'm, because I'm so focused on the story and the characters that my antenna are always up and I'm receiving all of this really interesting information and these details. And, and I recorded the whole thing and, and the journal is now over a hundred pages long and it's a real treasure for yeah, me. Yeah. I feel like you could publish that also. <laughs> I, mean, I, I sort of hope you do as, as a companion piece so or, you know, how like, yeah. exactly. Exactly. You know how like, it is sort of Go another, ahead. it's another writing Bible, right? It's another it way to talk about what we do and how we do what we do. In conceiving of season three, we're sort of re, I don't know, revisioning what we're doing on effing Shakespeare and, and, and just narrowing the focus to, to sort of say what it is or interrogate what it is, like why writers write and readers read. And mm-hmm. I think there's connection mm-hmm. there that, that whether you sit down to, you know, an 800 page novel or you, or you sit down to write the 800 page novel to write or read. We're both on both sides of the page, just trying to figure this thing out, this life thing out. Yeah. And I think there's so many things about the writing process that also mimics just the living process. Like you were talking about, we, we journal, right? As people interested in living a um, examined life, you you take note of the things that are meaningful to you. Or we remember our birth stories pretty vividly um, and write about those. And so, yeah, I, I think those that, that moment and the other moment you talked about, I forget where in what essay, but the happy coincidence that you find out that Scriabin, is that Scriabin. It? Scriabin yeah. is a chromosthete. Yes. Like Greg in your novel. Yeah. Which became for you in the writing process a shot in the arm because you get, you know, inevitably like we all do, you're, you find yourself in the weeds. Like, how do I write my way yeah. to the end of this story? And then you, then you know, that, that happy coincidence gives you a jolt, just like, you know, living a life and having a moment where you know having a downtime and then finding something that helps you out of it and taking note. You know, are there other analogs that you experience about the writing life that? goes with the life life yeah. <laughs> that reflects the life life, you know? So I guess this is also, this touches what Jess said about detail. I kind of feel like, so there was, you you had mentioned to me earlier about something I had written, excerpted that Huffy's yes. poem yes. about stay close to the sounds that make you feel alive. Yes. And there's another stanza in that same poem, and it says, Your soul sometimes plays a note against the sky's ear that excites the birds and the planets. Mm. And I, I love that line so much because to me what it means is that small things can have a great impact even if we don't know it. I mean, imagine something like a note exciting the planets when that note could be something it could be you know a a book or a thought or a gesture or an energetic vibration but something that would excite the planets is kind of a thrilling idea Mm -hmm. and I kind of feel like one of the things that I do in my fiction that I also try to do in my life is to practice the art of noticing you know because to write anything that would be worthy of exciting the planets requires great attention to detail And so I think that noticing things, whether it's a particular trait of a character or a causal factor of an event or a situation or a sensory detail of place, and then to recreate that for the reader through words, I mean, that's an incredibly exciting opportunity to do something like that. And, And when I do it, allows me to appreciate and acknowledge and admire those details even more. Mm-hmm. And and I try to do that in life as well because I feel like the the act of noticing is a gift, not only to the person who notices, but to the the things in the world, people who maybe aren't used to being seen mm-hmm. and noticed. 
and even objects, you know, just noticing those things allows me to more fully experience the beauty. And so I feel grateful and connected when I'm able to pay really close attention to things like that. And I think it makes me not only a better writer, but a better person. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And mother, and mother. <laughs> I think it must. And mother, I'm sure. Sure, yeah. I think it must translate to the woman, the 82-year-old Whitmer saleswoman, too, yes. right? Yeah. You get to sort of, those, those interactions ripple out throughout the universe. Too. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you. Oh, man. This is good stuff this morning. <laughs> yeah, <that's> exciting. <laughs> Whisper Hollow, 11 stories, the weight of a piano. They all lean heavily on music, which I love. And then I read this in an interview for Large Hearted Boy, which is that is that a blog? Is it an yeah. online journal? You wrote, in fact, I'm a writer probably because I can't be a musician. And on this blog, you you and other writers are other authors are creating playlists yeah. for your novel, which is such a great <laughs> concept. I love it. And I just happened, you know, we were researching for the show today, and I was also reading other stuff and I just read Christina Rivera Garza's Taiga Syndrome have you read that? I haven't read it and at the end she includes her own playlist so it's a thing right it's a it's a thing that we writers do that there's either muses or concepts and a lot of times it's music that inspires our work so I just want to know where the music fascination comes from and you know is that part of your family growing up? It's really not my mom played the piano my sister is a singer but I have no musical ability except to appreciate it. Nothing at all. I can't sing happy birthday because <laughs> it would ruin a party. I I don't hear music in my head. I don't carry a tune the way some people do. I even put that into the novel because I'm fascinated by the fact that some people can, you know, sort of press play in their imagination and listen to an entire piece right and not need anything externally whereas I I couldn't ever do that and I I don't know what that would be like but I love listening to music I love the way that it evokes such an emotion and and it really does inspire an emotion you can create you can direct an emotional response based on the kind of music that you're playing and and I just find that powerful and amazingly inspiring and I wish that I had the ability to do that I mean I used to fantasize about sitting down at the piano and playing some incredible piece of music and I literally can't play chopsticks (laughs) at all Um, so you know I don't think that I was I wasn't surrounded by music growing up necessarily and I don't even surround myself by it when I'm working I work in complete silence And that allows me to focus better, but then I can actively listen to music later and really appreciate it. So it, there's something about it that compels me to, to try to write about it as challenging as that can sometimes be for a non-musical person, but it is a a language that connects us all. Yeah. Yeah. I think it sits, I mean, I think that for me, you're the moments in your novel, as I said in the intro, they sit with me the way a beautiful piece of music does. Thank you. So maybe it's not music for you, but it's definitely language. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So is the writing process different um, for the dual narratives than, like, say, for... Um, I mean, I almost think of 11 stories as linked stories mm-hmm. um so was there something different about the way you approached balancing the dual narratives and weight of a piano and something else that's a little more linear for you I've actually never written anything completely linearly I've always mixed it up I don't think I know how to write any other way and to be honest with you I don't know how I do any of it anyway <laughs> so I could try to you know give you an erudite answer but it would be completely farcical I just it's kind of like riding a bull I get this idea which is sort of climbing onto the back of this wild animal and then I just hold on for dear life oh, oh shit comes together yes because <laughs> I don't really know how it does come together it kind of 
at the end of it, I stop and think, how the fuck did I do that? (laughs) The crafts stuff is, it's weird to me because it, it really just kind of somehow happens, you know, but, but first there has to be a, you know, a reason that you're writing at all. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, my prescription is to try to be fearless and to try to work as much as you can and to read as much as you can. Yeah. And there's the, the only way to, to create finished work that is, you know, something that people will want to read is to practice doing it. You know, I always think about rough drafts and, and false starts as, for example, a musician sitting down to practice piano, you know, all those notes that they're playing that are not recorded, they just go somewhere, they dissipate into the ether. And, and they're not for nothing. And they're not lost. That's part of creating a foundation that's practice and writing is is practice you know the early drafts and the multiple revision sessions you're practicing and sculpting toward the finished product yeah we're so hard on ourselves early you know before we have reason to be yes whereas if you think of it a kid learning to play the piano there's a ton of false starts and it's part of the process it is yeah and why do you know why do writers feel like um you know we're going to create this this masterpiece on the first try and it's going to be ready to go into bookstores without, you know, too much pain and effort. And a pianist would never sit down and imagine going to Carnegie Hall after their first lesson. And, and so I think it takes the discipline is just to practice Mm -hmm. as much as you can Mm -hmm. and figure out how to apply those, the, the specific craft lessons that, masters can teach us Mm -hmm. people better than I um later yeah yeah I think it's such a good note I think I mean like we we talked about Stephen King at the very beginning if all those ideas about what not to do are floating through your mind yeah you know we're never going to get the desperately human hands exactly you know you're not allowed to use adverbs and you're not allowed to have shit what do i do exactly i mean there are so many things that people say oh this this is never done well guess what right i'm probably going to break every single one of those rules (laughs) yeah including writing in a talking piano yes (laughs) <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. or I was thinking Jess and I were talking on the way over here about you know every workshop I was ever in they were like don't start your novel with a prologue just don't and I know you call it chapter one but it is it is atypical from the rest of the chapters it is, it is essentially a prologue and it's it works so beautifully I'm in the middle of my fifth novel and I'm no clearer on how I'm doing it this time <laughs> than I have been on any of the other books and any of the other many drafts of each of those books. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the thing too, right? Are you keeping a, a, a travelogue of this one as I well? I am. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah. Another metaphor just hit me. I think it's like, because I, I don't think the experience is the same for all writers. I think what you're describing is different than, you know, certainly what we, some of the authors that we've had on the podcast before. And I think it sounds to me like playing by ear. Yes. I mentioned to you that my dad just can play Claire de Lune by ear, never I taken a that. lesson. And and that's part of my, you know, piano therapy that we'll unpack later because I played <laughs> for years and just never played with this, the grace that he could, you know. And so, yeah, it feels a bit like that. Like you don't, and you almost don't want to unravel it all right. because you're afraid that it, right. the mystery. Right, I don't want to, I don't want yeah. the, the mystery to, to leave me. I don't want to unpack it and you know, be able to put it into a prescription because what if I, what if it doesn't work the next time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, if my dad all of a sudden tried to read the music while he played Claire Delaney, he'd be completely lost. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different part of the brain working, I think. Um, So what's the next project? So it's a book that I just love this book. I'm about halfway through it. It's called Zephyr. Mm-hmm. And it's a novel told in eight parts. So in some ways, it's a little reminiscent of, of 11 stories. And it's about, without giving too much away, it is about the unseen forces that affect and connect us. In the end, in the final section, 
the reader realizes that the wind has been a protagonist throughout the whole novel. And it starts in the West and it travels all across the country um, for a very specific purpose and over about a week long period. And each chapter um, is uh, has different characters and different situations. And and each of and they are all linked by the wind. We've gotten some feedback from our listeners that they love to hear about the publishing journey. Some of our, yeah. you know, new novelists or just got their first deal or maybe are still trying to find their agent. And I know your journey with the weight of a piano had some disconcerting closed doors along the way and then an opening. Can you tell our listeners about that? Oh yeah, this is. I'll try to keep it really short because <laughs> it's a long story. That what listeners should know is that there is a happy ending and the the theme of it all is just an unwillingness to give up Mm -hmm. but my first novel is unpublished I got my agent with it but she was she was not able to place it and she you know in in our defense we didn't try very hard we only sent it to about 10 editors and at that time I had finished the first draft of Whisper Hollow and she read it and loved it and said I'd rather go out with this one I think it's a stronger book and so she did and it went out to several people and then she called me one day and said this never happens but an acquiring editor a senior editor at one of the the big five would like to talk to you about this book would you be willing to and I said of course and so I'm not going to name any names here but I got on the phone with her and she said I love this book so much but I loved the part one more than than part you know I didn't even want it I loved it so much I didn't want to switch to part two And so I wonder if you could rewrite the second half of the book as a continuation of part one without this, you know, interruption. And I gave it very little thought and said, of course, I'll do that. Sure. And so (laughs) I did. I lopped off 200 pages and wrote another 200 pages in about six months and gave it back. And she said, you know, it's lovely, but no, thank you. And so then my editor or my yeah, agent change half of your book and then I don't want it anymore. and I don't want it anymore and um to be fair I mean it, I had well, I wrote 200 pages in six months and it wasn't the book that I had conceived of so you know like it wasn't right. probably wasn't appropriate for her to take it but anyway my agent took that version out again and called me and said this never happens if it's already happened once and now it's happening again but the same thing the senior acquiring editor wants to talk to you so I get on the phone and, um, and she said, I really love this book, but I feel like the second half isn't as well developed. Do you think that you could fi- fix yeah. that in some way? And so he just copied and pasted. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. So, so I did. I added another 80 pages and I edited it along the way. And we got really close this time. But in the end, it was, it was not to be. The marketing department apparently kiboshed it. And so... We went back out on the street with this new draft and yet again, this never happens, but it does. And she would like to talk to you. (laughs) Would you be willing to do it? And I said, yes, of course. And so we talked on the phone, a third senior editor, and she said, I love this book so much, but I'm so captivated by the protagonist. I wonder if you would be willing to rewrite the entire book from her perspective. And I thought, oh, why the hell not? So... Can you put a talking dog in it too? (laughs) So I did. I rewrote an entire 400-page novel in about six months from the the antagonist, not the protagonist, the antagonist (laughs) point of view. Totally changed the novel, and then of course she didn't want it. So my then my agent said, "Okay, I've I've decided that this is cruel and unusual. Why don't you go back and write the novel that you want?" to write the one that you would feel comfortable publishing and so i'm sorry but wouldn't that be the first one yeah and you know in my agent's defense she really liked each of the drafts (laughs) yeah and so you know we thought i didn't necessarily but she felt like they were constantly improving anyway so i what i did was took everything that i had done and i returned to the original structure the two-part structure But let me just pause here and say that while all of this was happening, I was writing 11 stories and my agent said, I love it, but I'm, I'm trying to sell Whisper Hollow and I can't do both. It's, you know, it's not done. 
she said, why don't you do it yourself? And so in the midst of all of these different iterations that I was writing while I was raising kids and cooking dinner and everything else, I created a publishing company. And so I released 11 stories under my own imprint uh-huh. and it did really well. And in fact, it got, got some starred reviews and it won some prizes. And, and so skip back to the, you know, final product for Whisper Hollow. I just won this, this wonderful award for 11 stories when my agent called to say, after I had given her back the final book that I wanted her to sell to let me know that other press had made an offer. And I thought it was because 11 stories had done so well, but in fact, she hadn't even read 11 stories, didn't really pay attention to it. And so here I went from, you know, nothing to this amazing offer with this small press. And it was their lead release for the spring of 2015. And it was, you know, it was an incredible experience. And while I was editing that and that whole process was happening, I was writing The Weight of a Piano. And I'd given my editor a first draft of that and she didn't care for it. So she released me. So I was, and then about that time, my agent decided to retire. And so I thought, I'm back at the square one. (laughs) And so the moral of the story is that there was no place in that experience for me to give up. You know, I was almost at that point just furiously determined to see it through to a positive end after all this work, you know, and I had kind of mistakenly thought along the journey that, okay, I'm going to do this and then I will have earned my way into some sort of security. And I realized that, no, it really doesn't happen that way. And I, you know, I kept at it and I continued working on the weight of a piano and revising it on my own. I found a wonderful new agent whom I absolutely adore. I feel so incredibly fortunate to have her. And she helped me with the final draft that she then took out into the world. And lo and behold, it landed with Gary Fiskett, John at Knopf. And I mean, I knew of him. I had met him at a writer's conference. He published a book by a good friend of mine. And I thought when I met him that he would be my dream editor. And so it has been kind of a dream come true that, you know, through all of this, I have finally ended up in exactly the place that I wanted to be. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. That's a great journey. That's an incredible story. This is Books for What Ails Ya. So we love to know about our writers' influences and um, love to share new books that people maybe haven't heard of for them to add to their to-be-read piles. Okay. So here we go. You're going on a long plane ride. What book have you been meaning to read but have been saving for that long, deliciously uninterrupted ride? There's an adverb for you, everyone, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My answer is Haruki Murakami's The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. Oh, I can't wait for you to read that. Good one. Yeah. It's 600 pages, and I've been holding off. That would be a long, very long plane ride. Yeah. I might have to <laughs> yeah. go to Japan. That's like Australia. <laughs> yes. Book or author you turn to for that cozy flannel blanket feel you need in the dead of winter? In Boston. In Boston. Always anything by Charlie Baxter. Charles Baxter, all who of his, blurred, who blurred, who blurbed, yes, yes, in full disclosure, he's a very good friend of mine and has been for more than two decades, but his work has always inspired me. And I, it's, it's something that I return to again and again, all of his novels and stories are set in the Midwest and he evokes yes. that place so beautifully. And it's a perfect accompaniment to winter or any other season author whose book you buy without even thinking about it when you hear she has a new one out so i have two answers for that my long time one of my favorite authors forever is annie prue Mm -hmm. so i would if she wrote a grocery list i would buy it (laughs) and i'm I'm here's my 22.95 can i have it in (laughs) (laughs) and a more recent writer who i admire is rebecca mckay and I've read all of her books, and her most recent is *The Great Believers*, which was a finalist for the National Book Award for this it's year. It's on my list. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's wonderful. Me too. 
What craft book teaches you about life either as well as or more than it teaches you about writing? For me, there's very little light between life and writing. And so uh, I find that that those sorts of books apply a lot to either one. But I have three favorites, one of which you've mentioned a couple of times, <laughs> Stephen King's On Writing, which I love, uh, Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. Yeah. And then I love Burning Down the House by Charlie Baxter. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. It was very fun. And it was, it's such a a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Thank you. Everybody, everybody show up. Everyone show up at Christ Church Cathedral um, for the launch of Chris's amazing new book and buy a copy and then buy two more. Thank you. It's January 22nd, which is today, which is launch day. Yes. At 7. At 7 p.m. Tonight's the night. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you on the backs of the harried, unpaid, and not-quite-starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary, and also the good people at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. Guys, we have effing Shakespeare t-shirts. Effing shirts! Have you Marie kondo the hell out of your closet and now all your t-shirts are car wash rags? If so, effing Shakespeare shirts will be sure to spark joy in your life for years to come. More importantly, these shirts are produced by our friend Diego in Mexico City. You can read more about his story and how these t-shirts came to us and place an order on our website, bloomsdayliterary.com. Pessimistic one. So when you turn pessimistic, then I turn way more pessimistic and shit goes bad. Just, just like, yeah. <laughs>